Hey TYT, I'm Nomi Konst and we're here in Chelsea, Manhattan at the YouTube space talking about movements, which is something, as you know, I cover quite a bit of. And uh, this last year I went and I, I observed and covered the Democratic Socialists of America uh, conference. And for those of you who don't know, the DSA has grown in membership. And there was an article in The Nation recently about that. And the title of the article is and you can find it from December 21st, since Trump's victory, Democratic Socialists of America has become a budding political force. Why an army of young people is joining DSA? And we have the author of that piece in the nation, Anna Hayward. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, for those of our, our members who may not be aware, what is DSA? DSA is um, a loose group of people. It, legally, it's a um, not-for-profit organization. It's a 501c3 and a 501c4. Um, and uh, its form is something between perhaps a lobby group, uh, a, a, an activist group, and um, a quasi or a proxy political party. It is not a party in and of itself. Um, and it was founded in 1983 um, out of a number of kind of splinter groups that had come out of the anti-war movement and kind of um, remnants of the actual Socialist Party. And its purpose then, although it's evolved, uh, was to be a socialist force or a socialist uh, leftward pull to the Democratic Party itself. That is a kind of procedural explanation of what <laughs> DSA is, but um, it's it's kind of all things to all people at this time. So in, in 1983, I mean, this was not in the middle of the anti-war movement. This is at a time when uh, the party did become, the Democratic Party became much more corporate. They made a, a, a very firm decision in the early 80s to, to shift in that direction. Were these like former Democrats that joined? Is, because I, I associate DSA, and I think so many people would associate DSA with, with Bernie. And that's kind of when he started. Well, yeah, well, I don't know where to start with that. Well, the, the Democratic Party was becoming, moving further and further, some would say to the center, others would say to the right. Um, and the founding of DSA and also its, its early days really tells you something about the, the weakness of the left in America at that time. As you said, the anti-war movement was, was not in its swing. Uh, it was really dregs of that movement and of things like... Um, uh, feminist groups um, and uh, you know anarcho-communists and I mean there weren't many of those in the in the early days and there still are a few today but um, it was in response to to the corporatization of the of the Democratic Party essentially who um, you know Jesse Jackson made a speech at a DSA convention in <laughs> I think 1984 um, in which he, he, he kind of tore into his Democratic uh, colleagues saying that they wanted to look like uh, look like uh, Roosevelt, I think, with mm. go f to the left, but with their hair flowing to the right like, like Ronald Reagan. And um, people associate DSA with Bernie, but they are kind of two parallel phenomena, Bernie and DSA. He, in the very beginning, when it was founded, he was not, he is not, and has never been a member of, of DSA, but mm. he really detested the, the kind of mission of the organization, which was to work with the Democrats and to 
to left leftize Democrats to be a, a, a base of people, a base of socialists to whom democratic candidates and politicians would be uh, responsible. And as we know, Bernie at that time was working outside of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. He was an independent in Vermont. He was uh, in the House of Representatives at that time and later became um, uh, mayor of Burlington. And he thought this was so feckless, this mission of working with Democrats, because he'd had no success mm -hmm. with it in, in, in his area. And he thought it was kind of a, a sure way to compromise and fail in any kind of redistributive uh, political project or any kind of socialist project. But his evolution with the group kind of winds here and there. He then kind of warmed to them in the early 90s and mid 90s, um, perhaps because he saw something that, um, you know, a group of people who could be supportive and, and mm -hmm. useful to him, people who at least had, were sympathetic to his ideas, which was true. And he had to actually work with Democrats. Once you're in the House, it, you're yes. not a mayor. You actually have to caucus yes. with them, and which right. he did. Right. <laughs> but he, you know, he, he yeah. has this um, reputation of being stubborn and of derogatory, yeah. and, um, and he, he, he absolutely saw his primary responsibility to the people of Vermont who'd elected him, not, the, not this party, this kind of weird shifting entity mm. of, uh, of very intangible politics, that, uh, which is what he saw the Democrats as. Um, and there was, in, in 2014, at a time when very few people nationally knew Bernie's name, you know, mm -hmm. outside of Vermont, uh, DSA did this um, kind of preemptive campaign called Run Bernie Run, where they kind of got out and went to every rally, every place he was going to be at, and canvassing and other things like that, trying to get him to, to run for president, which at that time seemed like a total, you know, very mm -hmm. niche, uh, fantastical long shot sort of a thing. Um, and one member told me this story of uh, turning up to one of these rallies in 2014, and Bernie has his staff there, and they're holding all these big hand-painted signs that say, vote socialist, Bernie for president. Wow. And the campaign, uh, someone from, I think it's okay to tell this story, as it was told to me on the record. Someone from Bernie's staff walked over to them and said, you know, guys, I'm so appreciative that you're here. It's so great, but do you think you could cool it on the socialist stuff a little bit? <laughs> because at that time, they were worried, as yeah. many, many Democratic politicians before him had been, of being sort of tarred with this socialist brush and of being um, discounted because the, the very word. And this is after he had announced that he was running. No, in 20, no, this was before. This was to get him to announce to run um, because, you know, they were thinking there's, a, there's an election in 2016. Yeah. It's probably going to be Hillary. Who, what, who, what can we do for it not to be? So, so, but, so, the, so Bernie's, camp, Bernie's office, Bernie's staff, was concerned of even About though he life. wasn't even going to run at that point. Well, he knew he was going to run, he I did. believe. Okay. Okay. But, and I think that's a, probably why they had this concern, right. like he's running, do we want him to say the word socialist? But as we all know, he very much um, abandoned that yeah. line of uh, He said it on a debate stage, yeah. Exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Interestingly, though, I mean, a lot of people to the left of Bernie contest his um, status as a socialist mm -hmm. because many of his policies um, 
Well, number one, he's not an idealist, you know? He's a pragmatist. It, he doesn't have, he's not, a, you know, a born ideologue, but a lot of his policies were what we call maybe social democracy mm -hmm. rather than democratic socialism in that they probably resemble a, a very lean capitalist welfare state in which um, there is a kind of redistributive program that mm -hmm. takes the the fruits of the capital market and then distributes it further down the income chain, mm -hmm. which is not any kind of traditional uh, socialist program at all. Explain that more. Well, the doctrine of, um, this is a very <laughs> tricky question to answer I've, because I want to start in so many points, but the, the doctrine of kind of um, vision of what socialism is, is a, a planned economy, a centralized economy in which there is a giant set of government mechanisms that control and distribute every resource. Mm -hmm. And um, there is no, uh, when you go to the shop and you purchase something, you pay the cost, uh, what it costs to produce that good and then you pay a little bit extra which is the surplus value mm -hmm. which is in in which you know all of capitalism kind of resides and within a socialist system the government kind of distributes rather than sells right there is no market right so um that is very far away from anything bernie sanders has so in terms of, of, of the DSA today, because so many people have, have joined DSA, do you think that they associate themselves, and I hate to look at them as a monolith, but um, do you think that the modern day DSA and the candidates that they endorse or the, the, the people who make up the membership fall in line with traditional socialism or Bernie Sanders' social, socialism? Well, first to contextualize a little bit, um, the number of people who have joined DSA since um, November 2016, which was Trump's election, is between uh, 25 and 35,000 people. Mm -hmm. um, and it began picking up in 2016. And something like 75% of them are under 35. Mm -hmm. So these are young people. These are Bernie supporters. These are... Um, people who were became disillusioned under Barack Obama in many cases, disappointed mm -hmm. by Clinton even before she lost. And um, the truth is, a lot of them that I spoke to, they actually, I mean, it's not clear what socialism is to almost anyone at this point in America because, number one, because there's never been a real socialist mm -hmm. movement, or at least not for 100 years or so. Mm -hmm. And number two, because um, central planning has been so discredited, uh, you know, nobody wants to live in a society like, you know, um, the former USSR. Nobody wants to live in a society like Venezuela or, or North Korea. And that is not, you know, central planning is not the thing that people seek when they call themselves socialist. Right. What they mean, you know, during the 60s and 70s, um, number of social movements, um, a lot of which happened on university campuses, uh, feminism and um, civil rights mm -hmm. kind of um, 
melded into new political definitions of what those ideologies were. And that, that movement, which incorporated social justice into an economic program, um, was kind of broadly called the New Left. Mm-hmm. And um, those people, as today, um, the new members of DSA are very, very um, concerned with social issues uh, as much or a similar, in a similar rate that they are um, economic issues. So a, a thing like um, access to abortion right. would never be, have been part of a traditional socialist uh, regime. I mean, like Nikolai Ceausescu in, in Romania, mm-hmm. abortion was outlawed and, and a woman's womb was seen as kind of the property of the state to produce more workers, more of the proletarian class. Which <laughs> I know. Wow. Um, which is probably what some capitalists think now. That, yeah, right, that's a very right leaning. analysis. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now you know where I lie in this whole. <laughs> um, and so one of the things that attracted me to this organization and to these people is that I very much thought, I very much think that um, one of the potentials, not saying that it's happening or anything, but one thing that, that these people I think are trying to hash out is what is socialism in America and what is it today? You know, it's not a gulag state. Um, it's not a, a, a kind of weird, um, cultish, mm-hmm. uh, centralized North Korea type, you know, mm-hmm. what what is a social program and an economic program that focuses on, um, I think using the term proletariat is fine, on, on the working people mm-hmm. of, of, of this country. Um, and I can report they are very, very far from that. <laughs> but um, a lot, you know, for, for many, many of the people that I spoke to, uh, this was their, this is kind of their first blush of political life and of political activism. And it would be highly unusual to to really know what you think at that point for many of them. At the other end of the spectrum is very, very old people in this organization. I was, one of the things that we witnessed during the convention was, uh, it was the dynamics between the people who had been part of DSA for... 50 years, maybe. Yeah, very long time. time. 30 years, yeah. or, or even maybe a decade. I mean, there, there have been spikes in membership, and obviously this is a big one. It seems like they're very grateful that the membership has increased and this is the moment, but there was a, there was a philosophical divide. And, and not to mention there are other philosophical divides, you know, continue, continuing on, like do we work with the party, do we not work with the Democratic Party? That's a huge one. Huge one that, that we noticed. Um, so let's, you know, talk a little bit about maybe the, the older generation of socialists is not of DSA members, what's what's their take on where we are today? Well, many of them are quite baffled. They never thought that they would see this kind of an organization. They thought they're very used to dwelling in you know small, dank little meeting rooms, doing readings and um, going out, straggly groups of five and ten to pick it. Uh, yeah. You know. um, and. And that is because, you know, it, moments of energy on the left in America over the past 20 years or so, say, um, or even just 10 years, you know, say, um, the Iraq war, protesting, protest against the Iraq war, um, the election of Barack Obama, 
Occupy Wall Street, anything mm -hmm. that had a kind of a grassroots impetus really kind of fizzled, faded, and did not leave many networks behind mm. that became activating um, mechanisms for people who wanted to be involved in political action. And I think many of them anticipated Trump being very similar to Trump's election. You know, everybody mm -hmm. was freaked out by Trump, and who knows what's, what's actually going to... Um, to come of it, and I won't say that there that this organization represents any kind of unified left or any kind of Tea Party equivalent, which is a popular equivalent that people like to make, because they're nowhere near as organized. There's nowhere near as clear a a vision or a goal. Mm -hmm. uh, there's nowhere near as much money, right? Um, and you know, they they don't have Coca-Cola sponsoring them, um, and they don't have very much experience. They don't have this kind of top-down leadership that's delegating mm -hmm. outward to, to campuses and to, to small town hall groups. So the old people who, when I say old, I'm saying um, maybe 50 to 85, mm -hmm. a lot of them had um, have a past in um, some kind of campus activism in some kind of, um, you know, maybe Ralph Nader-ish type mm -hmm. uh, political campaign or Jesse Jackson. And um, they have, their views are kind of historically different from the young people today in that, you know, perhaps they're less harsh on um, Israel and less understanding of the BDS movement, right. or um, a lot of them really have a very hard time understanding um, things like gender politics and um, I suppose what we broadly call identity politics mm -hmm. um, and things like the prison abolition movement because they're very much at odds with the, the world in which they formed their it's, politics. You know? It's very interesting. I mean, you'd think that the intersectional approach would kind of connect with, especially with Jesse Jackson. I mean, he's kind of the Rainbow Coalition. That is true. That is true. But but the way that Jesse Jackson framed uh, a person's identity in the world, although it had some kind of, um, I suppose, intersectionality to it, I, th it's, I think it's really different from the way that, um, mm -hmm. you know, a 21-year-old today, I mean, the the a lot of them kind of don't even believe in the idea of of gender in within one's identity. I, okay, you know? I understand. Yes. So that's I think that would have been a very foreign idea to right. Jesse Jackson. I don't know, <laughs> but <laughs> that makes sense. Yes. Um, so given these dynamics, I mean, what what I find interesting in 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 DSA right now is how it is it's sort of distributed. There's this. Local, it, it's a hyper reaction to the Democratic Party, which is very centralized. Mm -hmm. You know, there are no longer, you can't go to your local Democratic Party on your corner and have them fix your local problem the way that they, I mean, that was machine politics. Most of the machines, the Democratic machine is dead. I, I hate to break it to people. Um, there are some that exist. There's the illusion of, of a Democratic machine, but you don't have your like Tammany Hall boss or, you know, in some, obviously, there's cities that still have this kind of. But they don't have that. And if they do, they're not providing the services. 
And so what I find fascinating about DSA is, I'm not saying it's a machine, but they're, it's localized. You have a, a Queens chapter, you have you know, a Bronx chapter, and sometimes it gets even more local. It's like an Astoria chapter. No, a whole handful of them in Brooklyn. Yeah, there's, there's a bunch of them, and, and they provide services. Yeah. Which is fascinating. Well, DSA doesn't provide services so much as it provides a place to be, and then you can kind of make your own DSA experience. But what you say about That's it true. being um, a reaction to disappointment in the Democratic Party. A lot of these people, I think, were basically softish or unconvinced liberals that the Democratic Party probably did not have to lose, mm. who were so disappointed that they started looking for something, this is not the party for me. Is there anything else? No, there isn't in this country that's no kind of third party. I mean, my opinion here is that the Greens Party is not a real thing. Right. I come from a country where there is actually a real Greens Party that holds, uh, I think, 8% of the Senate and 10% in of the House. Like, yeah. Yes, exactly, in Australia. And, um, and, and, and I do want to go, uh, touch on that, though. You say Green Party is not a thing. I, I'm of the same belief. And, but I, let's delve into that a little bit, just as a, as a side. Why is it not actually a real thing? What qualifies it as being a real party or not? Well, there are a couple of things. One of them is that the, the political system in the U.S. is not designed to have other parties beyond the Republicans and the Democrats. And why is that? Well, that, that was kind of how the state formed yeah. as um, GDP outstripped any kind of governing apparatus <laughs> that you kind of already had this right. really wealthy economy before you even had a state in the, right. in, in the U.S. And then, you know, the progressive reform movement in the early 20th century, which was a bipartisan movement between mm -hmm. Democrats and Republicans, was kind of about instituting the furniture of a government, the Federal Reserve and right. antitrust laws and that kind of thing. But nowhere is it a kind of broad, broadly ideological and broadly institutional political field in which anyone can have a shot. It's, it's these two forces that are supposed to play off against each other. And I think many people um, found themselves quite lost in 2016, feeling very unrepresented by either party. Mm -hmm. and. But I mean, a lot of DSA members are also Democrats. Right. And that only means anything in that they're a member of the Democratic Party, or a lot of them, you know, there are, I think, 35 or 36 um, elected representatives who are members of DSA. And, uh, and I can think of th four of them who are elected as Democrats on the kind of, um, you know, school board of... Um, mm. County and Austin, you're not. So they're just independents? Well, you don't, a lot of elections on the local level, yeah. they're not on party lines. So you don't have to be an independent, a Democrat or whatever. You just are your person. And, mm -hmm. and so you end up being nothing in that position, you know, no party position. But, um, you know, in the House of Representatives and, um, uh, other, you know, in party races, those members who are Democrats are um, see themselves as belonging to this party for um, the sake of, you know, legal legitimacy and mm -hmm. and um, uh, 
pragmatism and they like to think that they are responsible to the left-wing base that elected them as an open GSA member. One of them, um, one uh, representative in, in Maine told me this story about how he was running. He'd, been, he'd worked in the, the labor movement for a long time and then he, had, he was quite popular in his area and he had good chances of being elected. And so the Democrats sent uh, this kind of training team to um, help him with his race, um, to kind of give him the rundown. This is how you run. This is what works. This is what mm -hmm. doesn't. And um, they said, you know, you have to get rid of anything that uh, it sounds socialist. You can't say that you're going to raise taxes. People don't like that stuff. You um, huh. can't criticize the party. You know, all this stuff. And he decided to pay attention to none of it. Um, <laughs> this is in Maine, so, you know. Oh, it's all And um, he's a very popular elected yeah. official. It doesn't work so well for other people. Mm -hmm. um, it, it also depends on how strong the party apparatus is. And the right. DNC is, like, the very top-down kind of powerful governing. There's that, there was actually a fantastic piece by um, Micah Sifri in Politico about a year ago that that really went through step by step the dissolution of Obama's um, grassroots mm -hmm. um, activist movement, which he had that site, my.barackobama, which mm -hmm. had, I think, like two million independent um, members who could then form fundraising committees and um, rallies and, and things like that from, from their own local places. These you know, places where it was distributed, yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, which was kind of just dismantled, completely folded into the DNC after he won. So OFA, I mean, w w became literally part of the DNC. So that mybarackobama.com turned into OFA, and then they they went into the building of the DNC, shared an office space, had a wall up, hired separate staff, and you know many people will say that's kind of the beginning of where the Democratic Party started to shift away from their fifty-state strategy. But so you see. So, You've, what do they do? I mean, do they? Was there anything? Well, that's such a good question. And what you what you said earlier about um, the kind of disappearance of the Democratic Party on a on a local or a grassroots mm -hmm. level, I think, is pretty intertwined with the dismantling of of the labor movement, which is. Um, mm. I mean, how do you if you're a, a party, which is this kind of weird, abstract, non-existent thing? That, that is made up only of, of its people, how do you reach the many millions of people that you're aiming to, to, to court, you know, to, to induce to vote for you? Um, you know, everybody who has a job who could theoretically be part of a labor union can then be part of a, a, a network that can be politicized or not, or unified or not, or split into factions or not. And... Um, given the union membership, I th the union membership in in the states is so very low. I think actually the figures were released last Friday, and it had gone up maybe a little half bit. a percent right. or something like that. Um, but still, but still insanely low. And the labor movement has not been a concern of the Democratic Party for many years. And um, I am of the opinion that that is a mistake because it's hard to tell at times who they are representing. 
And I think a lot of the people who have turned to DSA as a way to work outside of the party are seeking different kinds of representation. So it's, it is true. I mean, there, by design, the, the, there was a strategy to shift away on the Democratic Party in the early 80s, shift away from labor politics, um, maybe late 70s, and move more towards a corporate, you know, for financial reasons. I, there were a lot of reasons at the time. Yeah, a lot of reasons at the time. And you know, the argument was we can win the South. We can win uh, these blue dog kind of candidates. But the truth is, when you actually look at the numbers, which a lot of people don't do, I think there's this reputation that because you had Bill Clinton and you had a bunch of blue dogs, they won. But the Democrats held the House for 30 years in a row until a blue dog became the president. And that strategy went into the Democratic Party. And they've only won back the House twice. And it was for a brief period of time. So it seems like there would be no other answer at this point. Of course the Democrats should should align with labor. But now that labor... Now that labor doesn't exist, exactly. it's much harder to, to, to start. Yeah. So how... how how does the DSA integrate its strategy? I mean, do they have an answer for this? How do they integrate their strategies, their response? I mean, do they boost labor? Do, do they infiltrate the party? I think infiltrating the party is probably a fantasy, but I don't think it's something that um, could or is going to happen. What I mean, a lot of the last year has been... Um, I mean, the, the achievements of DSA are, are quite few, and they're quite mm -hmm. small. I think the biggest achievement is probably something that is hard to track, and that is the education and the politicization of, of their membership. They, um, you know, so they have these candidates that they go and canvass for, that they officially endorse. They mm -hmm. have these candidates that, that are members who run like on a very DSA-centric platform, whether it's in a party or a non-party race. Mm -hmm. But then what happens after that? You know, how are these candidates or these politicians elected responsible to this, to right. this group or this base? It's very hard to tell now if there is anything... Um, any kind of a tangible outcome to the growth of mm. the organization. Um, but I, you know, we'll see. In terms of the labor movement, they're very, very pro-unionization. They are very, you know, they once a week they go and stand on a picket line. Um, they were doing that for many months um, on here in Ninth Avenue uh, with the workers of B&H photo. Mm -hmm. They... Um, are closely aligned with uh, CWA and a number mm -hmm. of other, a lot of their staff and members are uh, former labor union organizers. Mm -hmm. But all of that is kind of like, you know, there's relationships and there are beliefs, but um, they do not have an answer to reforming labor. Each individual member probably has some kind of an answer. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the things about DSA is there, it, it, by design, there is no uh, party line. So strategically, I mean, if, if let's game this out, because I think this is, this is so fascinating to me, to where, where this type of movement goes. I mean, granted, there have only been so many races in the last year, so that's understandable. And how do you hold them account to account, you know, the electeds, 
that's something probably have to think about. But say at some point, um, DSA, our revolution, maybe the Working Families Party, I'm thinking of all the different types of party, non-party organizing entities, uh, you know, these organizations that give endorsements, in the case of WFP, in some states they have a little line, they are an actual party. What if they all align? Do you think that that would make them, um, well, first thing, is it possible? And, and second, would it become a force to be reckoned with? You're describing the formation of DSA. <laughs> is that how it happened? Yeah, you know, he, it, Michael Harrington, who, who founded it, you know, along with uh, Barbara Ehrenreich and a number of other um, you know, prominent kind of leftist intellectuals of that time, the, it's, it's like you have all these people who want this thing, but they're all in this pocket and that pocket and this group and that group, and some of them are Shaktonites and some of them are Trotskyites and some of them are, you know, um, Visigoths, whatever. Yeah. Uh, how can we ever have any power with, you know, when this is, when we are just a group of many, many individuals. And um, our revolution and DSA are pretty similar. They look pretty similar. They mm -hmm. have, they, well, the thing is, like, within DSA, it is so broad this, the phrase broad tent is what they use, and they have, um, you know, some groups, some caucuses and working groups who are like, call themselves uh, tankies and <laughs> Stalinists, yeah. which tankies was a new term for me. Um, and they have like some pretty uh, familiar Democrat Party-ish liberal mm -hmm. politics in there. Who ha those are people who have joined because they believe in Medicare for All or something, mm -hmm. a single-payer system, which is totally something that you could maybe one day seeing, mm -hmm. imagine seeing on, um, on the Democratic platform. You know, they're not looking to um, kind of dismantle the entire capitalist system, yeah. but they do believe in some of the, some of the beliefs of this group. So, you know, in terms of uniting DSA with other groups that are a little bit divergent, I think uniting DSA with itself is already <laughs> a very challenging <laughs> proposition. And the kind of, the, the magic of it and also the huge disadvantage of it is that because it is horizontally designed right. and you don't have a technocratic leadership designating everybody's ideas and everybody's actions, you will just never get a um, one moving entity mm -hmm. going together. So every time right. you know there's a candidate who's running or endorsed by DSA, there's, there's a counter group who is tearing them down, you know, even if it's in private. There are um, huge disagreements over um, programmatic issues, um, Huge disagreements. I mean, even before the 2016 election, there was a big split in um, what's called the National Political Committee, which is this um, elected body uh, of 11, 13 people um, who are supposed to be a kind of think tank brain trust to suggest um, 
platforms, programs, strategies mm -hmm. to the entire group. Um, and within that, that group, which at the time was very, had a far higher age average uh, than it does today, there was a big uh, discussion over whether or not they should endorse Hillary or, so this was post-Bernie, right? Um, obviously, the uh, entire organization was very, very pro-Bernie. They spent their like entire operating budget on um, Bernie-related uh, boosting. But whether or not to endorse Hillary was a real, really existential question for them because on the one hand, nobody wanted President Trump. Right. But on the other hand, oh, most of them didn't want President Hillary either. Yeah. President Clinton. And uh, the idea of like, do you just kind of throw your, take the good with the bad and roll with it and just go for the next worst thing? Or do you really, really uh, adhere to your, your ideals and settle for, for nothing less? In terms of like, you know, if, if, we're, if we're going to endorse Hillary, does that dilute who we are and what we're doing? And that is kind of the big question about this, this organization doing anything in any kind of electoral politics today. Because you know, what's what are the chances of of, uh, of the United States having a socialist economy in the yeah. next twenty years? It's just like it's uh, well, and 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 for I mean, for that situation in particular, it's not like they were the Green Party, right. who were you know we could debate that ad nauseum right now. <laughs> uh, but it was in some circumstances, it just seems like maybe you just stay out so you can keep your your ideological bent and not dilute what you stand for. So moving forward, though, because this is. Or do you just transfer all of your energies to say state and local right. races? Or do you? I mean, exactly. that's, that's a question that a lot of voters um, asked themselves in 2016 as well, which is why there was such yep. low turnout. You know, I don't like anything that's on offer. Maybe I will just stay home. And e even that option is, I think, very existentially fraught for a lot of people yeah. because it's not without its own consequences. It's it's become. Um you know, the, the, the way that the Democratic Party had functioned was it was a very top-heavy. Everybody else uh, either suffers or benefits from the presidential ticket when it really should be the other way around, that it should be the grassroots kind of building that. And we learned that lesson <laughs> very seriously in 2016. Um, socialism has had such a bad connotation in the last, you know, several decades you can turn on Fox Business at any moment and see them criticizing the socialists, and you know, it's just like Venezuela, and you don't want a socialist economy because that's what's going to happen. And, yeah. um, and it's the same thing as communism. And that young gentleman who go, does his segments where he goes to Venezuela. Oh yeah, it's 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 become a brand, and as socialism, democratic socialism, um, is growing, you're going to hear more and more of this. But it does seem that there's a stark generational divide. Do you can do you see? DSA continuing to grow, or is there a ceiling? Given that, if there is a ceiling, I don't know about it. And if there is a ceiling, I think it will either be because people get some kind of fatigue and decide that you know I was freaked out by Trump, I've had my mm. my year of political activism, I want to go back to my life, or it will be because there is some other place for these people to go, the, hmm. the Democratic Party, some other Bernie's. 2020 campaign, someone mm -hmm. else's 2020 campaign, you know, with the, the five hours a week, six hours a week, 20 hours a week, 
that you have to, to do your, uh, your kind of civic duty, if, if that's what you do, how are you going to allot it? Um, at the moment, a lot of young people have decided the DSA is their place to go and, and, and work. But it's not like that is some set in stone mm -hmm. thing. You know, it, it could flush away as, as fast as it came. And um, we're about a year, a little more than a year out from when people started joining in very big numbers. Mm -hmm. A lot of those haven't renewed their membership. But you still have this um, contingent of new members who are, who are joining every day. So right now, it is still growing. Um, and I think what happens and how much it continues to grow will probably be determined by um, the elections in 2018 and in 2020. Right. And um, I mean, just to refer back to um, the discussion of, of Bernie Sanders' relationship to the organization T tonight in DC, he is holding a big town hall that's based on Medicare for All. Which is hosted by the Young Turks. It is, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, he actually reached out to DSA, his campaign, mm -hmm. his, I keep saying campaign. His, his office. His office, his staff, right. Um, reached out to DSA and asked them to um, to be involved and to bring their membership out mm -hmm. and to um, publicize and all that kind of thing, which tells you that, that the Sanders staff see some value in this organization, which uh, is a very, very fast evolution from the 2014 sign waving, please stop that moment. Wow. And uh, I think they, they have great potential to, to offer a progressive candidate um, a ready base of, um, of, of boots on the ground, of mm -hmm. volunteers and, um, uh, and voters, you know. And it's distributed and, and, and having, I think it would be fascinating to see in the next couple of years, will there be a DSA, you know, conference or caucus in the House or in state houses and state senates and and, you know, we have a couple mayors already. DSA has a couple mayors already. Uh, I am a member, <laughs> if you're wondering. Yeah, I am not a member. <laughs> yes, I just, my job allows me to do that. Uh, but I'm also a Democrat, so I'm in that faction. <laughs> but Well, it's hard not to be, I think, if, you're, yeah. if you want to participate in politics. It's yeah. very hard to take the Sanders word. He many, many years on the outside. Of, yeah. of, I think the first time he, he ran for anything, he got 1.8% um, of the vote or something like that. Um, Two percent. I can't yeah. remember what the figure is, but uh, you know, not everybody is up for that. And he would have never been elected mayor. It came down to you know right. just a few he votes. He would have been beaten out by the uh, Democrats. He would have had to you know run against. And so when it came to it, it was kind of the question of him beating a Republican, which is, mm -hmm. I think, for Sanders much easier. Um, we never got the chance to find out. We will maybe see in 2020, maybe not. I don't think anybody really knows except for him, but uh, it'll be an interesting moment. And, you know, without a doubt, DSA has grown because of, of the Sanders form of politics. Yeah, really interesting piece, really interesting uh, thing to follow. And, and obviously, this is an incredible time to be paying attention to, to movements. So I thank you. I learned a lot about America. <laughs> thank you so Welcome much. to America. <laughs>